Thank you, Devin. It's great to hear Devin not only on the organ, but also on the piano as he uh, gives praise to the Lord. Well, today we have opportunity to, uh, again, look at the best sermon ever as we look at the words of Jesus uh, from the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to that section and we'll be examining a portion of that this morning. You know, last Lord's Day was Super Bowl Sunday. And of course, pastor types think that every Sunday is Super Sunday. All Sundays are super. But I thought we'd begin today by giving a little bit of a a Christian football analogy between what happens on a Sunday morning as it relates to maybe what happens on a football field sometimes. Uh, And some of you may or may not be more aware of some of these terms that are used by uh, fans or fanatics of that game where people throw this little ball around on a field. Uh, The quarterback sneak, that's church members quietly leaving during the last song. (laughs) Draw play, what many children do with a bulletin during worship. The bench warmer, those who do not sing, pray, work, or apparently do anything but sit. Backfield in motion, making a trip to the drinking fountain during this service. Staying in the pocket, what happens to a lot of money that should be given to the Lord's work. That can hurt a little bit, right? The two-minute warning, that point at which you realize the sermon is almost over and begin to gather up your children and belongings. Uh, the trap, you're called on to pray and you find yourself already asleep. In run, getting out of church quick without speaking to any guest or fellow member. Uh, the flex defense, the ability to allow absolutely nothing said during the sermon to affect your life. And then the blitz, the rush for the restaurants following the closing prayer. (laughs) You know, thinking about, you know, a game in which millions and millions and millions of people watch, actually around the world, and millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent on advertising during that three-and-a-half-hour, four-hour game. Uh, It was interesting, this past week I was watching that very religious uh, station, ESPN, and, and they were... They were uh, commenting on the New York Giants, who were 7-7, seven and seven, uh, really little hope of getting into the playoffs. And if you're familiar at all what happened, they actually won the Super Bowl last, last uh, Lord's Day, uh, Super Sunday, is, is they had a chaplain come speak to them when they only had two games left to play, and they had to win both of them to get into the playoffs. And he made this analogy to them. He said, you know, as people, and he was speaking to people who are going to a chapel religious service, so he was speaking about this theme about being all that God wants you to be. And he said, often what happens is people want to be all they can be, but they don't want to give all they have to be what God wants them to be, whether it be on a football field or in the marketplace, at school, in your neighborhood, at home, whatever it might be. And he said, I I want you to understand, if you're going to do anything significant, you all need to be all in. And if you've uh, heard them speak about that, uh, most of the giant football players, it was at that point, they all together decided the next two games and any other games we get this season, we are going to be all in. And of course, that speaks about not being superficially involved in whatever you're doing. And Jesus, when he spoke to people, obviously they, they couldn't leave hearing him without recognizing he wasn't asking for a, asking for a partial commitment, something superficial. He was asking for everything. He was asking for them to be all in. And you can't read the Sermon on the Mount without getting that. First of all, 
the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. You can't be all in unless you desperately recognize you need to be all in. You have nothing of significance to offer the living God unless you give him everything and desperately cry out that he would fill in all the gaps. Well, as he began with that beatitude section in which he called people to recognize, number one, it was available for everyone, but it was going to take everything from anyone to get in on it. He, he then speaks about, okay, what, what is that going to look like if you're all in? And this morning, the, the message title is entitled, Everyone's Battle. And as we think about the Christian life, part of it, what we need to understand is it, it is a battle. I mean, God's won the war, but we're in the battle. And, and we have battles daily and from various fronts. And we need to recognize that if we, we don't see that, then we have somehow looked at God's plan for our life in a superficial manner. So with that is a backdrop. I want to make a couple of statements and then look at some specific things this morning. First of all, what is the battle? If it is a battle and everyone's in that battle, what is the battle? The battle is measuring up to God's standard and then living it out. In, in case you haven't um, perceived this, is God's got a pretty high standard. It's, it's, uh, he's a pretty tough teacher. He's that prophet that you don't want to take because it's going to be a hard course. Uh, look what he said in Matthew 5.20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You can take the most righteous person you can imagine, the person that you would put on a pedestal because of their lifestyle, and you've got to exceed that. I don't know if that would be Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, but that's not enough. Because you can't reach God's standard on your own. In case you don't know what that specifically grade you have to get, I remember going to school, I always went, what do I need to get to get a B? Or what do I need to get to get an A? You know, what kind of scale you're you're uh, grading on, well, for, for God, it's 100%. There's no margin for error. And, and you can put it this, how do you win the battle? Having God do for you what you can't do for yourself because you can't bat a 1,000. And in James, it said, if, you, if you've messed up on one part of the law, it's like you've messed up in all of it. In Zechariah 4, 6, even as you enter into a relationship with God, you need to recognize it's got to be God working in you. So he answered and said to them, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What we want to long for once we enter into that relationship with God is, is we say, God, I want you to live that out in me and through me. I want it to be not by my power, my might, my intellect, my experiences, my training. I want it to be through the Spirit of God using all those, but it's got to be a God thing, a Spirit of God thing in my life. What's the battle? You've got to measure up to God's standard and live it out. And how do you win that battle? Allow God and have God do for you what you can't do for yourself. But then that's all in generalities. What's, what are the specifics to this battle? Or to put it another way, where are the front lines in the battle? What are the things that we are battling? And so last Lord's Day, uh, Brandon shared with you the first line of conflict or the battleground of anger. Remember that? You know, if we were really honest this week, anybody murder anybody this week? <laughs> somebody said no. Well, I don't know. I, I got pretty close to murdering somebody. I got pretty ticked off on a couple of people this week. You know, and, and then when I began to look at, well, you know, 
if that was at the level of anger that Jesus was speaking about, it wasn't just simply, well, you know, I, my fuse was a little bit shorter than it should have been this week. I committed murder. Because I took that which God made in his own image and I demeaned it to a, enough a much where I, I was so charged up that, you know, it was, I demeaned what God had created. And, and if you didn't murder anybody else, anybody, mur- anybody commit suicide this week? I mean, I almost did that this morning. My wife uh, had to be with my, my youngest son. And, I, you know, men, can you relate to this? When your wife's not there, do you have a tr- sometimes trouble finding things? <laughs> I couldn't find something, you know. And after longer, I kept, I kept saying, I started kind of like, Mike, you're an idiot. You can't even find, you know, what a fool. You put it someplace where you couldn't find it. And then I'm thinking, I've just murdered myself. I just called myself in a slanderous way. You know, God is, is very concerned about what happens in our heart toward others and even toward ourselves. Anybody want to have that as your standard, that you've never blown it emotionally in your response to people or your attitude toward people? Well, that was the first battleground, anger. Today we're going to speak to another area. And in some ways, I could say, well, this was better suited for a younger crowd. But if you look at the statistics, this is really for everybody. Because the battleground that Jesus spoke to, this diverse crowd that he spoke to on that Sermon on the Mount, is, is the battleground of lust. And, and lust is, is desires out of control. It, it's desires that are running toward things that it shouldn't run toward. And particularly the area here, which would be uh, something that we should all be probably not surprised by. He was talking about having lust in your heart in the sexual arena toward people or um, places that you should not go. Uh, Let's look at the passage this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. I did this in the first service too. I told you to turn to the passage and I didn't turn to it. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said to me, or said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, he raises the ante here. If the, if the measure is perfection, he wants you to understand this is how deep this is. You can murder people with your anger in your heart, and you can commit adultery in your heart through lust. And then he says, well, this is how hard I want you to battle this particular battleground. This first front line, verse 29. But if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. To simply put here, he wasn't talking about mutilating your physical body, but he was using hyperbole here to say, do whatever it takes to get a handle on this. And as we think about it, the Spirit of God is that which empowers us, but he empowers us to take steps that will guard our emotions and our thought life and where our passions go. And he says, do whatever it takes to get a handle on that. Now, in case we think somehow this was only a problem in Jesus' day, which is kind of interesting because 
most of the women of that day kind of wore a lot of clothing, right? That's not like we have today. And as we think about it, it is more rampant today because it's not only the experience on a physical level, but it's, it's a temptation that is multiplied because of the various media we have today, whether it be movies or television or the Internet. It's everywhere now, and particularly the Internet has exploded the problem that we have, at least in the American culture, with pornographic pictures in our heart and mind. And the issue of, here he spoke about adultery, which having intimate relationships with someone that's not your spouse, but other places says any type of sexual immorality uh, breaks God's commandment of being holy before him. Well, let's look at what's, and I'm going to use different statistics that I used in the first service. Let's look at the internet for a moment. They have done studies now, and this is from Score Media Metrics. Two in five Internet users visited an adult pornographic site uh, this week. That means 40%, if we were just to take that uh, average here in this, in this room, have visited uh, a pornographic site. Interesting. You know, we all search for things. Let's Google it. That's now a phrase. You know, you know anything about this? Well, let's Google it. Well, what's the number one term used in search engine sites to Google? Is it travel, music, jokes, cars, weather, health, jobs, games? You put those all combined and they don't add up to the internet search for sex. I I think this is somewhat pervasive in our culture. The internet pornography industry, and depending on what you read, the numbers go a variety of different ways, generates $12 billion dollars in annual revenue, more than the combined annual revenues of ABC, NBC, CBS uh, uh, together. The largest group of viewers for porn now, they say, is children between ages of 12 and 17. Other studies I looked at, so it was 18 to 24. Others said it is a seniors issue. We have more seniors visiting that than any other site today. And, and they, they try to... Slip it in. Uh, I think one statistic I read said there was about, what was it? It was uh, around anywhere between 25 to 32% of all sites are adult pornographic. But it's not just those who are blatantly that way. Even commercial pornographic sites do a variety of things. 74% display free teaser porn images. 66% of them do not include in a warning of, of adult content. 11% 11% included uh, such a warning, but did not have uh, sexually explicit content on the homepage. In other words, you get on the homepage, it doesn't look that bad, and then you go a little bit further, and it becomes very explicit. 25% uh, prevented users from exiting the site, that once you got in, they could trap you, they could mouse trap you. Only 3% required adult verification. This is, it is what is in our culture today. Uh, Pornographers disguise their sites with common brand names and misspellings designed to entrap people. And then they actually use it. Examples using ESPN and Disney. The average age of first exposure in the first service I said was 11. This, this statistical analysis says it was age 8. And here's where we begin to say... Well, this is, this, is, this is the world's problem, not the church's problem. A survey, and this was done in 2006, but the survey 
reported that 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women are addicted to, to, to pornography. So what we see here is it's, it's pervasive. And in one sense, we can be shocked by that statistic, but the church is the perfect place for imperfect people. And so we, we're not phobic about anything. We want people who are struggling in any area to come to a place like this because we care about them, we love them. God has, uh, uh, has the power to set them free. But we need to recognize that it is rampant among people in all walks of life. Just, just remembering from memory some of the things I shared in the first service, the, the most uh, non-pornographic day in uh, a calendar year is on Thanksgiving. In a particular week, do you know which day of the week pornography is, is seen more than any other day of the week? Sunday. So again, as we see, this is an issue today. One, one last thing. Pornography triggers, this is one uh, Dr. Judith Reilsman said this, pornography triggers a myriad of indigenous, uh, endogenous internal natural drugs that mimic the high from a street d- drug. Addiction to pornography is addiction to what I dub uh, aerotoxins, mind-altering drugs produced by the viewer's own brain. So this, this is the issue that Jesus was speaking to in the first century. And it is magnified in so many ways now. And if this is not one of your issues, this is an issue for your kids or your kids' kids. Um, and you need to recognize, you need to be praying for their purity and doing whatever you can to lead them down a path of purity. Not by way of condemnation, but of support and encouragement. And again, as I say, this is not an age-limited struggle. It, It is across generations, and it's across ethnic and gender boundaries. So what do we need to learn from this? Well, Jesus, and again, we have the Reader's Digest probably view of his entire sermon. He probably added some additional things. And what we're going to do this morning is add some additional things because it's, it's from God, it's from the Spirit, it's from Jesus, it's other parts of Scripture. But Jesus simply put it this way. You know, don't be involved in lusting after people, reducing them to an object of your affection. And do whatever you, t- you can to get away from that. That's my paraphrase in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. But other passages kind of give us some fuller background or some other approaches to understanding the conflict here. Now let's look at it. Number one, where are the front lines of this battle? The battleground of anger. Secondly, the battleground of lust. And here are some bullet points. Number one, temptation in itself is not sin. There, there was a time in my life I thought, man, I must be horrible because all these thoughts come in my mind or I'm kind of provoked by various things I see. Well, that's just being in the world. Uh, the Bible says that God allows temptation to come in your life to test you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 speaks about that. But the issue is how long do you linger on a thought that comes in your mind? I mean, we can emotionally respond with anger, but if we, if we harbor it, then it becomes sin. And the same thing with, with lustful thoughts. It's one thing to, to have that, that thought come across your mind, but do you let that linger? You know, it's that second look or third look, you know. How long does that linger? That's when it becomes sin. So 
Temptation is not sin. But giving in to temptation is sin. And that's what James 1 speaks about. When we allow those desires to have its full course and it leads us into sin. Sin in the heart or sin in action. And so we need to guard our minds and hearts related in that way. And, and then thirdly, bullet point, everything that feels good is not good. And, and here's where we need to let people know very plainly uh, that, that that natural sense, well, if it feels good, it's, it's got to be good. Uh, there's, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that. How, how could God not want me to experience this? I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. Well, it's a, there's a passing pleasure to sin. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And so we need to recognize that a temporary high from any experience or enjoyment does not necessarily mean that God honors that. And and that's the problem with addictions, any addiction. Uh, The reason people do whatever they want because they enjoy what they're doing. But the problem is some things that we could enjoy if they're done in the wrong place in the wrong way will control us. And, And we can't Live life to its fullest. And this is one huge dangerous place. And it's rampant in our culture. And again, if I don't say this enough earlier, God forgives, God restores. If people are going through this right now, if you're going through this right now, we're not here to condemn you. We're here to say, here, there's there's another way. And part of it is, is being honest about it. Just because it feels good, it doesn't necessarily mean it is good. Moses had all kinds of things to experience, but he said it would only be a passing pleasure. Next bullet point, I think it's the fourth one. Uh, sexual sin is self-inflicted pain. 1 Corinthians six eighteen says, Flee immorality. Every other sin is outside the body, but, but a sexual sin is a sin against your own body. And God has created us in such a way physically that when, when sex is, is participating irresponsibly, the natural consequence, not, not even the, the specific hand and judgment of God. Sometimes people are wondering, is God punishing me if I do this or that? Well, you know, God has got the whole universe under His control. It's in His hands and, and things are, are done um, with His sovereign control, but just like a human parent, sometimes when, when my kids were to do silly things or irresponsible things, I didn't have to punish them. Their actions themselves punished them. And if I told them, I don't think you're ready to stand on the handlebars of a bike going downhill, and they did it when I wasn't watching, and they crashed and burned, I didn't have to punish them. They already got that punishment when they hit the pavement. And I didn't put something in the, on the road to trip them up. It just happened. And when people are involved in, in sex outside of God's boundaries, even, even on, a, on a visual way, it, it tears them up. It destroys them, and it puts pressure on the relationship with their life partner. It, it, allow, it, it causes them to, to be so focused on things non-productive that the natural consequence 
is a self-inflicted pain. And that's without going into all the gory details of sexually transmitted diseases. And again, that's just the, I think most of that's a natural consequence. It's quite possible God sometimes jumps down and, and sovereignly punishes someone for an act, but often it's just the natural consequences of doing that which God says is unhealthy. And often, as you look back in the Old Testament, some of the things that God did for the people of Israel was just to somehow preserve them from pain. If you'll do it this way, you won't fall into what all the other nations have done. And that is particularly in relationship to this area. And again, you know, to God, sex is not a four-letter word. For that matter, it's not a four-letter word for us either. It's a what? It's a three-letter word. God created it. Physical intimacy uh, in, under God's program is something that God uh, made himself and wants us to enjoy and appreciate. Next point. You are influenced by others. And we need to be very aware of that, that the Bible says that, that you know, we, we don't control our actions totally on our own ability to have self-control. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. I think in the New American sense, it's bad company corrupts good morals. And it's interesting that he begins that statement with the idea, do not be deceived. Now, why did he say that? Because people are what? Deceived. Well, that, that might be true for other people. It's not going to be true for me. I, I, you know, I've got a handle on this. No, none of us have a handle. We, we've got we've to control our environments. Now, some things we can't control. You can't drive down a freeway without seeing billboards. But there are other places you say, I don't think I'm going to go in there. I'm not going to pay the fee to watch that. And, and, you, and you make decisions because you know that will influence you or influence your child or your ch- your child's child or or your friend or whatever it might be and you just you know don't don't be deceived this is going to impact you uh, you know you all, all these built bullets i mean you could you could preach a sermon on but i mean it, it, as you think about it as god tells us what to do he also tells us how to do it and part of it is controlling our environment. Next bullet point. You must guard what you see and what you hear. In Job 31, uh, verse 1, very clear statement by Job. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Now, he wouldn't say we, you know, men can't ever look on women that are young, but he said, I, I don't want to look on a young woman like some people look on young women, to desire them to be mine, to objectify them and, and not see them as a real person. I mean, would you want someone to look on your daughter like you're having other people look on other people's daughters? I, I'm going to make a, a promise before God that if, when that happens, I'm going to turn away. Now, it, uh, you're going to see that, but then you're going to turn away because I do not want to do that. And so we have to govern and guard what we see. But also what we hear. Proverbs 6, 24 and 25 says this, to keep you from the, the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. goes on in verse 25, do not lust after her heart, her beauty in your heart, nor let her lure you with her eyelids. But the idea that of not being caught by the flattering tongue of someone who, who wants to lure you in. 
Now, where does that come in? Probably most often in our culture, it's, it's probably through music. Now, again, probably in our worship experience today in this service, music is probably not the, the, the avenue for most of you. But let, let's take a, a genre, not, you know, it used to be that pastors said, I'm going to talk about, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, all right? But let's be honest. Have you ever listened to country western very carefully? I mean, the, the music is much more tame and easygoing or like that. But country western, most, most of those songs have a real evil message to them. But I, but I like the song. I mean, I, I don't really listen to them. I mean, I, I've heard seniors say that. Well, I don't listen to the words. I just like the song. Well, listen to the song, too. Because that's what you would say to people who are listening to rock and roll. We've got to guard what comes into our ears. And even the conversations we have. And again, we, we need to set the example for others as well. And then this one. Be attractive but not seductive. In 1 Peter, if you're taking notes, uh, the reference here is not totally uh, the one I want. It's really 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. I mean, verse 2 will work, but it's really verses 3 and 4. We've talked about not let your beauty simply be outward, adorning yourself but let it be of the beauty, beauty of the heart, the quiet uh, spirit. But really the idea here is that God is not talking to his people and say, well, I want you to be so blasé that you wouldn't you know, cause anyone to reflect upon your beauty. He's not, he's not saying that. He's not saying don't be attractive, but he's saying don't be seductive. You know, don't cross that line in whatever fashion it is where it's saying, no, this is... This is this is promoting something more than just, you know, the beauty of, of how God has made you. Uh, did you read this past week about uh, Kyle, Kylie um, Busetti? I think I'm saying her name right. She uh, won a contest. I think there were 20,000 women that were competing to be Victoria's Secret's number one model for lingerie. Uh, Kylie had been a, a model since age 14. She just turned 21, and she won that contest. And right before they did the big uh, run, um, runway presentation of Victoria's Secret's recent um, new product line, and as I'm saying this, some of you are wondering, well, how do you know so much about Victoria's Secret? <laughs> I subscribe to the catalog, not to look at the pictures, but to read the articles. That's what I know. No, this is on Yahoo News. <laughs> so in case I, I, don't, I don't look at Victoria's Secret. But anyway, she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, give up my crown. I'm, I'm not going to model lingerie. And they asked her, why? You just reached the top of that field. I mean, you're going to make millions that way. She said, well, I, you, know, I, you know, I'm still willing to model, but I'm just not going to model lingerie. Well, they said, well, Why? So at age, she's 21, she says, well, you know, I've just been growing in my, my relationship with Christ, and I, I came to the, what seems like an obvious conclusion, I, I don't think I'm honoring God when I present myself out like that. And, and they, she had just recently got married, and she said, my husband didn't put any pressure on me, but I don't think I'm honoring my husband by wearing things like that out in public. But what struck me more when I read the article was, I said, and then it hit me, I was putting on makeup, and my eight-year-old cousin little girl was watching put on makeup and as I did that she said to me I want to be just like you when I grow up 
I don't want to eat any more. I want to be just as thin as you. And so I, I don't want to be the role model for my eight-year-old cousin that she feels she can't eat so that she can be pretty enough to, to be a lingerie model. And, and so as we, as we think of these challenges that God wants us to be pure and, and there are steps that need to be taken. I have a friend who, who wrote a book and within it he he said, well, let, let, me, let me talk about what sex is. What is safe sex? And he used an acronym that I thought was good. I added some verses to it. He, he just had the acronym. But you know, the scriptures, if, if people are going to have safe sex, this is what safe sex is. Number one, scripture's moral authority. It begins with people saying, I'm going to believe that the, what the word of God says is true. And it will be the justification for my actions or not actions. It won't be simply what I feel or what everybody else is doing. The Word of God will have authority in my life. The Bible says in John 17, uh, 17, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And it's tied to holiness there. If you want to be holy, then then conform your life to the holiness of God's Word. But in case people are a little bit obscure, well, what does that really look like? A, abstinence before marriage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the whole passage there is powerful, but it, it really speaks about um, fleeing immorality, abstain from sexual sin. And, and really, it's any sin that's not within the confines of a monogamous relationship with your spouse. But then thirdly, faithfulness during ministry, uh, during marriage. And, and that's the challenge as, as we have in, that, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Be faithful to the partner you have. And then finally, the E, enjoyment God's way. A great passage, very, very specific in Proverbs chapter 5, which speaks about delighting in the wife of your youth. To let her fountain be that which embraces you and gives you joy. And God wants us to enjoy that which he has given us in the, in the married relationship. What's the, what's the point this morning? The point is, is that, that God wants us to understand that we're all in a battle. And, and we're in this, this battle together. And we're helping other people win as well. We, we want everyone to win. And so we're praying for people's purity. We're encouraging them to be in purity. And, and we're, we're being very honest with them. This is a battleground. And particularly in our culture today, it is a bigger battleground. Because of all the media. And we haven't even talked about social media what can happen on Facebook or any of these other areas, which can become just as pornographic if you're not sure which friendship sites your family members are visiting. And he wants us to be set free from that which will tear us down. Now, just like in the first service, I, I didn't get to the next battleground, which is a whole series in itself. But let me just summarize. that There's also the battleground of marriage. And Jesus right after he speaks about the area of lust, speaks very plainly into the lives of his people. And he says in verse 31, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, there are a variety of the passages I've listened to you in your outline this morning. But let me just give you the bottom line of that statement. The bottom line of that statement 
is that God values the marriage. And there are times where people will have biblical grounds for divorce. And there will be times where God's people will have divorce apart from biblical grounds. But as we look at those and as we are challenged by those, the bottom line statement by Jesus is that he wants, if at all possible, the marriage union to remain intact. That you, you don't go into that thinking there, there might be an escape clause somewhere. In Malachi, it says that, that he hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people, but he hates when that gets blown up. And so we, as a people, want to raise up the value of people remaining together. We don't condemn people who have gone through it, but we want to value and raise up people to be committed to being faithful. I have all kinds of storylines to, to, to tell you that, that just the, the, the landmines that happen to not only the couples but, but also the children involved when marriages don't remain intact. And, and God knows that ahead of time. And so he's calling his people to be separate and different, to be unique. I, I finish with this, this very simple, are, are you on the winning side of the battle? Or to put it in New York Giants, Super Bowl, cliche, fighting words. Are you all in? All in to win the battle of anger. And all in to win the battle of lust. All in to, to elevate marriage to what God has called it to be. To be that which was faithful and displays what God has always intended it to be. Let's pray together. Father, you want us all to be in, to, to really see that you have set us free to be the people you've created us to be and want us to be. And, and it's not always going to be easy, and we're going we're to be tripped up at times, and we're going to fail. But Father, you want us to, to be so committed that we say, God, whatever it takes, I want to honor you with my life and my commitments. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you in a personal way, we invite them to take that step, to recognize that you can't do it on your own but the Spirit of God can empower you with His truth. Father, thank you for each person here, and help us to be lights that shine for you this week. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We invite you to...